Welcome to the 167th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 115 years since a baby boy was born in Cootamundra in New South Wales. Donald George Bradman would grow up to be a rather useful player. In this episode of Reverse Threat Radio, um, we're going to be talking about uh, the joys of casual cricket, about the recent ODI series between Afghanistan and Pakistan, a series that's flown under the radar a little bit. Um, I'm going to be uh, reflecting on a on a recent encounter with a Japanese colleague, and we're going to be reviewing Edging Towards Darkness, the story of the last timeless test, a book by John Lazenby. Andy, you've been having some fun in the Kentish countryside. Yeah, so I was walking there a couple of weekends ago with some friends who you know very well, and someone had made the very good decision to bring a cricket set, which is obviously a bit of an undertaking. You know, it's a sort of big plastic bag full of... Uh, it's kind of, I think, mostly aimed at children, but has a set of stumps and bat and ball. So it's it's something to, to carry with you on a walking trip. And you don't bring it if you're um, not going to use it, is the main, it's main a statement thing of there, intent. I think. Yeah. It's a statement of intent, exactly. Um, and of course, you and I love playing proper cricket, you know, representing a side, trying to win a game, two 11s, full innings, whites and, you know, all that jazz. But this did really remind me how much fun it is just to put up two sets of stumps and mess around with friends. You know, no one's keeping score or taking things too seriously. But at the same time, you know, pride is at stake. Bowlers still want their wickets. Batsmen still want to show off some shots. The sledging is pretty constant. Um, All wickets must be celebrated in very excessive fashion. Um, And of course, everyone gets a go. You know, that's that's a real plus side. Everyone gets a bowl if they want it. Everyone gets a bat. And I did reflect that the other great advantage is that compared to a club game, um, the wait for a post-match pint is far shorter. Yes, very very philosophical. I think the other the other great thing about those games of cricket is that they are a fantastic leveller. I mean, you kind of um, alluded to that in the sense of everyone everyone gets a go. But there's also that thing when you're just playing on a on a on a random pitch that someone who hasn't turned their arm over for years, playing against someone who actually you know has um, is 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 relatively keen. Often that's where. That that's where you can get one over the um, the real enthusiasts of the game. I remember that happening quite a lot. I when I think of um, of joyous games of spontaneous cricket, I think about the one at your wedding, and uh, I remember a few a few in- instances of that kind where those who were taking it very seriously, kind of sort of myself included, got their comeuppance. Yes, it's true because actually the the sort of casual bowler who doesn't really play, who just sort of tosses it the up, donkey drop. Um, it's the old donkey drop. Donkey drop. Yeah, yeah, particularly on a pitch that isn't a pitch um yes it's quite um it's it, it, it can be quite lethal i think it's interesting because people often think of football basketball as kind of you know casual mm. pickup games and you can see why because actually you just need you know you really just need the ball but in its own way i think cricket cricket can work well for that i suppose you need that little bit more space especially if some someone's deciding to be anti-social and really hit the ball around um it's also partly the triumph of the incredible because it's a great um bit of kit in the um it plays in a realistic-ish way. So, so is this the one, um, the kind of softer one, but did you have the one that swings? Because you can get those ones that have kind of carpet on one side and you know cling film on the other and they just kind of swing a swing a mile or was this one of these kind of standard fairly standard we were just using the standard orange plastic one which is rather good because it's sort of more more than a tennis ball it's sort of you know kind of plays it has the right weight as well to it 
Yeah, you can sort of bowl properly with it, the batsman. It doesn't do that thing a tennis ball does where if you try and bowl with a tennis ball, it obviously just kind of sits up. It's, yeah. It becomes a very batter-friendly game. Um, I think we did in the bag have one of the balls you described, but I, without wishing to cast dispersion on any of anyone else playing, I'm not sure we had any kind of swing bowling maestros who could have, who could have taken advantage of that. Um, on the subject of maestros, uh, we you've been paying attention to... Um, a series that, as you say, has perhaps not had huge uh, global attention, but has had lots of interest in itself. Yeah, so Afghanistan and Pakistan playing each other in Sri Lanka um, over the last few weeks in a, in a three-game ODI series. Um, and I suppose that the 3-0 scoreline in Pakistan's favour suggests that this is one of these kind of you know, rite of passage, um, you know, um, or not even rite of passage, whatever the opposite of that is. But, you know, one of these run-of-the-mill, that's that's what I'm trying to say, one of these run-of-the-mill um, series where it's a foregone um, conclusion. But there were some kind of really interesting things to come out of it. And I, you know, as much as anything out of, you know, having a bit of spare time at work, ended up following it and felt kind of quite rewarded um, by that, not least because it was the series that took Pakistan to number one in the ODI um, rankings. Um, so... In the um, in the middle, no, sorry, in the final ODI, uh, which it looked like Pakistan were gonna gonna um, win comfortably with um, Afghanistan batting second and chasing, and then um, Majibur Rahman, who I think is best known as a spinner with a quite incredible range of deliveries. That's kind of nothing he doesn't bowl. Um, suddenly came in at I think number seven or something and scored the fastest ever fifty for Afghanistan. Ended up with sixty four of thirty seven balls and kind of gave a, a a glimmer of hope to Afghanistan that they might be able to um, win that final that final game. In the first game in the series. Um, uh, Afghanistan got bowled out for for fifty nine, but not before their spinners had taken eight wickets, which I think is the most wickets ever, most wickets by a spinner by spinners ever taken by um, the Afghanistan team, which is just an incredible kind of um, display of of depth in their in their spinning ranks. Obviously, we know about some of their big name spinners, but there were obviously a lot of spinners coming through as well. And then that amazing second second game where Afghanistan posted three hundred, um, and Pakistan just scraped across the line. I think they got got home with one ball to um one ball to spare um so i suppose it was just a reminder that often with these series they seem like um they're just happening because the schedule says they have to um and the matchups kind of seem to lead to a foregone conclusion um but this was one i think which was uh, really kind of rewarding from you know from a spectator's perspective I was saying to you before we recorded, it's interesting how some of these series, as you say, you're, it's hard to follow everything that's going on, that the way it came to my attention was there was the now traditional Twitter debate slash outrage over a mancad slash run out at the non-strikers end, mm. depending on your preference in terminology. And I thought it's that reassuring moment. If you, if you want to get social media going, have one of these. Um, it does also make me think, where there's a lot of justifiable worrying about how you make sure Afghanistan and Ireland and these other countries are, are just giving enough of opportunity to play. And I wonder in some ways whether it's not ideal, but you these sort of almost partnerships with countries that there's a close relationship to, sort of Afghanistan and Pakistan cricket have been yes. quite close, I think, since the start. Maybe you do end up leaning on that and hoping that your um, your near neighbour will, will, will make sure that you're provided for in terms of games. <laughs>
from the archives. Now, you'll be glad to know, listener, that your reverse rep radio hosts, they never stop. They never sleep in their ambition to find new material for this podcast. So when Toby was sent for an exciting work trip to Japan, he didn't see it about work. He saw it as another opportunity to research and find material for this podcast. And that's where he takes us to. In this Indeed. And so picture the scene. I'm at a business dinner business dinner in Tokyo um, I've been having meetings all day but such is the way often with with Japanese business that I haven't got very far with the meetings during the day and it's all being saved up for when we've had a few you know glasses of sake um, at this dinner that's when the real business is going to be done and I'm trying to warm up this this colleague of mine um, and haven't so far had much success and um, and so I, I say to him, oh, what are your what are your colleagues? And he turns the, the oh, sorry, what are your hobbies? And he turns the question um, straight back on me. And I talk about a, a talk about a few things, and then I mention cricket, and his eyes just absolutely light up. And I think, okay, here it is. Here is my in with this guy. It's all going to be plain sailing from here. And we have this kind of long and slightly con- you know confusing conversation in broken English. And after about 15 minutes, it dawns on me that he's completely confused croquet and cricket. And um, so all of his kind of slightly odd questions about 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 hoops and how, you know, what he was, we talked for a long time about how important it was for the pitch to be flat. He asked that and we talked about that for a while. And of course, that's something that's relevant to both sports. Um, anyway, it was like something out of some kind of comedy scene of some description did you face an etiquette dilemma in terms of is it for the best of my you know professional interest that i did i suddenly adopt a deep interest in croquet well i did so what so what i did was i said um what i realized suddenly realized the confusion was i said to him ah well as well as croquet i also love cricket Ah, oh, very clever. Very and smooth. at this point, he just looked completely, completely disinterested. His face kind of fell and he just moved the conversation on straight away. And so I thought to myself, well, I wonder what kind of connection there is, if any, between Japan and cricket. And so I thought for this from the archives that I would um, delve into a little bit of the history of the of that so the first recorded game of cricket in japan was in 1863 predictably it's between two team two teams of brits um the circumstances are slightly unusual the story goes that a group of merchant seamen british merchant seamen were fearing an attack on their ship by local samurais and so they invited a group of navy soldiers who were based locally to come over for a game of cricket thinking that if those navy soldiers were there then it would deter the samurais from from um, attacking um, those soldiers did indeed come over apparently you know kind of heavily armed of course you should turn up to a game of cricket heavily armed um, the tactic seems to have worked there weren't any 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 attacks we don't know who won but I imagine that um, you know the focus was on other was on other things um, just five years later um, then a cricket mad Scotsman by the name of James Pender Mollison, formed the f- formed the first cricket club in Japan in um, in Kobe, and from then on, kind of the hub of cricket and certainly expat cricket in Japan was in was in Kobe. Um, That's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? That I think you get that in a few countries where you get a sort of um, 
a base point, a kind of birthplace mm. of the game that then, and that can then be quite, I, I think there's a similar thing, isn't there, in the US with Philadelphia. You, you can kind of, you create that historic home that then becomes quite, a part, I guess, part of the legend of the game in that country. And that's a really interesting point as well in terms of thinking about geographical places that become the centre of sport because there's another place that has since become that for, for cricket in Japan. Um, but it's worth just dwelling on, on baseball quickly because baseball is absolutely massive in Japan. There's this guy, I was reading an interview with this guy called Alan Kerr who runs operations for Cricket Japan. And he reckons that, you know, such is the prevalence of baseball that Japanese children grow up with a kind of hand-eye co- you know, coordination that is absolutely perfect for them to play cricket. And so from his perspective, it's kind of here's this, you know, groundswell of potential um, for cricket. Um there's also the fact that when it comes to sports like, I mean, not only baseball, but also football and rugby, Japan have, you know, really taken foreign sports sort of to their to their hearts. Um, but this doesn't, I suppose, the flip side of this is that baseball and cricket are effectively competitors for one another and that the craze for baseball really derived from the links with America. Um, particularly the trading links with with America, and there isn't a comparable influence on Japan to bring cricket into the cricket into the country. So instead, whereas baseball kind of came very much you know directly from the American influence, instead cricket has developed in a more kind of sidelong way in 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 Japan as we've seen, and that continued into the 1980s when in fact it was a Frenchman, um, Robert Gilles Martineau, who had learnt the game while living in England came back to Japan um, and started up the first Japan Cricket Association. Um, There have been, it's kind of of worked the other way in terms of Japanese players going over to cricket playing nations and coming back and setting up university clubs. And there's one guy um, called Naoki Alex Miyagi who learned cricket during his summer holidays in the UK. And then he came back and studied in Tokyo in the 1990s. And in his hometown of Sano, and this goes back to your previous point, um, suddenly the authorities heard about this game and they thought maybe this will be a really great way to revitalize the town, to bring tourists in. Is Can this be the one unique thing about this town? No one else in Japan is playing cricket. Can we make this thing, you know, the, the kind of headline of the town of Sano? So Sano now has the only cricket pitch in Japan to meet international standards and it regards itself as kind of Japan's cricket town. In 2018 they had a a Sano cricket curry festival in which they combined you know cricket with the the subcontinental um, food in a kind of effort to show off the cosmopolitan nature of um, cricket. Wonderful, which actually would be yeah no I'd I'd go for that I think it I think it is a future research trip you're right. I, I mean We've come across it on a few of these stories of, um, I guess, associate nations that are growing, but it does take these very determined maverick figures, doesn't it? Because I think it's so hard when you create, you you try to build attention for a sport that doesn't have, you know, that that much as we love it, does take a bit of learning, does take a bit of time, does take a bit of buy-in. And as you say, these these figures um, like Naoki, Alex Miyagi, who've, who've you used well, you know, decided that you need to be a bit of an evangelist. Mm. You need to come home and, and win converts. Is um, yeah, it's, it's sort of brilliant. Yeah, it really has. It really does seem to be the story of a few individuals, rather than when it comes to you know cricket growing in other 
places around the world where kind of the seed is planted and then it seems to sort of grow naturally from there it's required kind of active intervention sort of all the way along and it's still the case so Japan does have a, a national team that plays in a number of leagues particularly in the Southeast Asian um, part of the world um, but they're really hoping their that... under 19 team mm. I remember that actually has competed in a couple of under 19 world cups I yes. think without without I think sadly as yet notable success but that feels like a pretty good starting point it does and the other thing that they're really pinning their hopes on is that in 2026 the asian games is in japan and they're really hoping that that cricket will be um included in that because there's this big thing in japan that unless a sport is seen to be part of the mainstream then people don't sort of get on board with it and so the endorsement of it being part of the Asian Games will immediately give it that kind of credibility that enables um, spectators and players to to get to get on board as well so it's always been this kind of stop start um, stop start history but it seems like there there could be another chapter that's about to begin I wonder also if there's some very clever things you can do. Um, obviously in urban areas Japan is sort of famously kind of very really tough competition mm. for land in somewhere like Tokyo I wonder can you do some genius things around I know a baseball um uh I'm probably going to give it the wrong name baseball fields I guess uh, is is different but can you do some really clever things about sharing territory with other sports mm. um to try to help grow the game much as I would obviously love you know every cricket ground to look you know beautiful Christine. and bucolic maybe there's some <laughs> The review, and for the 167th episode of Reverse Swept Radio, we have been reading Edging Towards Darkness, the story of the last timeless test. It was published in 2017, and it's by John Lazenby, who is a cricket and rugby journalist for The Times, The Telegraph. Um, he's written a few cricket books, including one about the first Australian tour of England, um, and one on his grandfather, the cricketer Jack Mason. Um, so this book is about the very last timeless test which took place between South Africa and England in 1939 in Durban and this test is actually a subject of a previous um, from the archives I can't remember which one of us did it but we did a feature on this at some point in the in the in the previous 166 episodes of reverse world radio um, so what um, so what more is there to know about this test about this test after we've done the from the archives well I mean, what what did you but in terms of the test itself because it's you know it's kind of part of popular folklore you know the ship the ship sailing the test doesn't get finished but what did you learn about this test match that you didn't know already what are some of the things that you learned so i think i had forgotten um quite how close england got to winning it so mm. you know, it was obviously given that this lasted from the 3rd of march to the 14th of march even allowing for a little bit of rain um and the rest there was a there was a lot of yeah, and quite true in the rest. Of it, there was a lot of batting. But, you know, the, the batting here is totally ridiculous. I mean, England needed 696 to win in their final innings. They finished on 6-5-4 for 5. And, you know, 84 years on, no other fourth innings total has got close to that. I think it's the, the record by over 200 runs. So the, the batting in this in this test match is is quite ridiculous and mm. I, I hadn't I hadn't realized that I also hadn't really realized um and I guess this is the question people always ask when they wonder well why why not finish the game I hadn't quite realized why there was the urgency to catch that um ship mm. so we're dealing with a situation where World War II is increasingly looking imminent and um Lazenby sets out the fact 
that if the, all the boats were basically fully booked, I mean, people, I mean, slightly confusingly perhaps, but people wanted to get back to Europe. Um, and apparently if they had cancelled their booking, um, there's a feeling that they may have been stranded in, in South Africa for a long while. Mm. And he does a really good job, I think, of, of painting that kind of shadow of war that that sits behind the whole tour and kind of really dominates, I think, the tone of the tour. But going back to the test, one of the things that I kind of enjoyed was the fact that um, the pitch just kept on holding up. You know, they they kept on expecting that after maybe three or four days, the, the pitch would start deteriorating. And so the idea is you go in, you score. South Africa won the toss. And everyone thought as soon as you win the toss, you basically have got a leg up to win the game. You've got your nose in front straight away because you can go in, you can score as many ones as you went want and then you wait for the pitch to deteriorate and what happened in this game was that it kept on raining you know overnight but that kept on making the pitch better and better and so by the time they got to the seventh or eighth day you know the pitch was kind of barely deteriorating there are a few foot marks but beyond that the pitch was kind of not really deteriorating um at all which i thought was just a kind of it must have been such a bizarre world for the players to be in to know how to approach this game I, I think it, it it ended up being nine days of play, and you think, as you say, for a pitch to not deteriorate in that time. I guess most um, you know most expectations we we think a pitch will deteriorate gradually. You'll expect it certainly by day four, by day five to to deteriorate. Mm. Um, I I mean I, I learned a lot, and I think it's worth saying that the book sort of has the test at its centre, but but kind of gives is is a, tries to cover really the. That it covers the broader context around it. I had thought that timeless tests were very rare, and I was completely wrong in this. Um, in that, I, I understand now that all test matches played in Australia before the Second World yeah, War. Yeah, the Australians loved them perversely. Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of, I kind of known that, but not realised that it was all of them. That I knew the Australians were big fans of them, but that they were all of them. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it did make you realise that I, I think some of these things that you um, you consider, I don't know, we, we consider sacred and unchangeable about cricket, you realise have actually always been much more up for debate and, and contested well, and than they were. Well, and the fact that when England go back, the next series that they play against the West Indies is three-day tests. Yes, yeah. Straight away, which after. is actually very interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes now, when we give um, Ireland a four-day test, for example, and people make the argument, "Look, is that not you know, very disrespectful?" You realise actually there's that there is precedent to this idea of, of varying it. Yep. Um, so, so how so how do you, having read this book, how would you approach playing a timeless test? What would your tactics be? Because this well, is kind of at the nub of. The, the kind of cricketing story here isn't it is how how do you approach this if you think about what's happened and i know i know maybe this is a danger now that we bring everything back to basball but to bring everything back to basball basball is all built around limited time isn't it mm. it's how do you make sure you can force a result within five days and you play really positive cricket to make sure that you've got enough time for your bowlers to bowl the other team out etc it's really hard when you've not got that time waiting over you. What the South Africans did fell, feels incredibly boring, but um, it seems to me that their approach wasn't unsound in that, you know, 
to effectively ask England to score 700 runs, it was pretty reasonable for them at that point to think they'd done enough to win the game. Um, but it's it's hard to claim that that's the approach of the entertainer, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like by the end, this was asking a lot of... It, this had become a feat of endurance for the crowd and the players. Well, and this, and this kind of interesting fact that they had to keep on cutting the ticket price and in yes, the last days, yeah. basically kind of no one no one turned up um which is not a great kind of advert for the game particularly because it was this test was played as a timeless test because the rest of the series the series was drawn up to the final game which is why the final game became a timeless test and so it should therefore be an exciting decider by the time that you get to the end of it not something that everyone's kind of a bit sick of by the time they get to the final you know the final days so interestingly, this point about how Australia had timeless tests by default, my understanding um, from reading some of Lazenby's broader context around this is that you you didn't end up with these absurd situations because actually the pitches were quick and the games were not going that long. So, I mean, maybe part of the lesson is the timeless test only works if you have a sort of sensible pitch, basically. Yep. Yep. The moment, as you say, you have some sort of batting nightmare. But did you, did um, you see that reference at the beginning of the, at the, beginning of the book, which I had never realized that when the world test championship was first being talked about in Mm. the early 2010s maybe the proposal was that it would be a timeless test that they were going to bring back timeless tests in order to decide the final of that to make sure that there was a result and what Lazenby puts the spotlight on is the fact that so often timeless tests actually didn't end up in a result for various reasons yes so often because they're the last game in the series and they kind of have whether it's catching a ship or there's some other immovable you know diary um entry mm, they have mm. to they have to they have to call time on it i mean the idea of a timeless test now in the modern schedule would feel very very radical um you made the point earlier about the sort of the shadow of world war Two, which i guess of course is what um lazenby's title of you know edging towards darkness pop partly re- refers to um i think it's kind of extraordinary they toured at all um i mean you have these um fascinating uh nuggets Headley Verity, and I guess this is particularly poignant given that w- mm. we know that you know, he, he was tragically to, to die to, in the war, to, yeah. to, to, to go on to die. In the, yeah, exactly. He he spent much of his leisure time on tour studying military manuals, and you think, how on earth? I, I, I don't know. The, the idea that you could go on a cricket tour to South Africa with this hanging over you and get on and play cricket, it, it, it's that that balance feels quite remarkable, doesn't but it? I, but I wonder whether it's. Get on with things. You know, when they went back to, to England and they would go and play county games and Wally Hammond would have to get on the tannoy at the start of the game and tell, you know, people to go and sign up um, in order because they were like, well, here's our captive audience is, you know, young men coming to watch the game and we're here to, you know, this these games need to become a part of the recruitment drive. So it seems like a kind of surreal, it's a surreal time, you know, all round as well, isn't it? Yes, yeah, and... Is there also that part, I suppose, and this Lazenby brings this out a bit, that you may also take the view as a player that if you do believe war is coming, you want to take this last moment to play. Yeah. I mean, Lazenby makes this point when they get back to England and he's in those final county games before the war of the players trying to savour it, knowing, yeah. you know, yeah. when, when will they, and in some cases they would, of course, never never get to play. And what's quite fun as well is, is the wider description of the tour and the fun they kind of have and the camp sense of camaraderie, because obviously away for months on end together, um, often, you know, long, long train journeys to get from one end of the country to the other, things like that. I was 
quite amused by the um, talk of the fine system, um, where yeah. you know things like you had to have a bottle top on you at all times, including during games. And if someone asked to see your bottle top and you didn't have it, you got a fine. Um, or like certain days of the week where you had to drink with your left hand as well. Um, I think Lazenby does a good job of kind of painting a picture of what life is like on the road for those you know really extended really extended tours yes and i think you saw the benefits of the south africa tour for the players because it was something i hadn't clocked before that it was you could get to south africa in two weeks Mm. whereas apparently australia was a two-month trip and you could see that what a difference that is for the players as a tour that that makes the whole thing um sort of more i guess more attractive and more more um more manageable Mm. um uh, it was also very interesting, I think, to get a sense of quite what an expedition these tours were. Um, there's a calculation that 12,000 miles of railway travel, um, which, you know, by, by any account, I mean, th- they were tours in the truest sense, weren't yep. they? You know, they covered every kind of inch of the inch of the country. Um, one of the great- this was the last timeless test, wasn't it? And I think maybe it's worth just referencing, I guess, how negative some of the players yes. were about it by the end. I think these quotes were quite telling when Walter Hammond, of course, the captain, and who in many ways has had a pretty brilliant test. I don't think timeless test matches are in the best interest of the game, and I sincerely hope the last one has been played. He was right about that. And then I thought this was fascinating by Les Ames when he says, we were naturally disappointed to be robbed of the opportunity to score the 42 runs required for victory, but by the end of the day, I'm afraid few of us cared what happened. And you think that's quite a good indicator of when a format's gone wrong. That's a damning indictment when, when you don't care. Admit. Yeah. When you don't care whether you're yeah. going to win or not, that is... Um... That is a damning indictment. Um, so, Reverse Web Radio is not a timeless test, so we are going to wrap that up um, here for this episode. Um, that was the 167th episode of Reverse Web Radio. Um, tweet us over at Reverse Swept. Um, send us an email with uh, ideas, feedback, um, comments on the difference between cricket and croquet. Um, and we will be back with another episode very soon. Mm-hmm.